0: Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Thanks so much for joining me today. Before we get into our normal routine of starting with a team timeout, I just wanted to take a moment to do a corrections corner. I received a really lovely email from Dr. Oliver Fisher, who's a surgeon in Sydney, trained originally in Switzerland, who wanted to let me know something I missed about large bowel obstruction from last week's episode. Specifically, when I was talking about large bowel obstruction and the incidental finding of peritoneal carcinomatosis, he made the excellent point of something that I completely forgot to mention, which is that Obviously, depending on the patient's fitness and the degree of disease, these patients could be considered for debulking surgery and intraperitoneal chemotherapy or HIPEC treatment. For these patients, he suggested that the PCI or peritoneal cancer index should be completed. And you can Google that, but basically it's looking at different areas in the abdomen and rating how much tumor there is in all these different areas. And that if the patient has a low burden of disease, they should be defunctioned and referred to a specialty center. And in in Australia, uh, St. George's Hospital in Sydney and the Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne are the peritoneal uh, cancer centers on the East Coast, at least. I wanted to take the time to thank Oliver so much for his email. Obviously, I do this podcast and mostly I'm talking to myself, so it's really nice to actually hear back from someone and we were actually able to connect and he gave some really great perspectives on his training and the differences between training here and in Switzerland, as well as some really fantastic advice to me about my future career path and um, my PhD journey I'm about to start on, so it was a really nice way that I've connected with somebody through the podcast. And I just wanted to let everybody know that really feel free to send me an email if there's something that you think I've missed or something you wanted me to know about, or even just to say, hi, I'm finding it really valuable, um, the connections I'm making through this. And I really hope that that's something that continues. Also, just to make it slightly easier to get onto me, there is now a First Incision Podcast Twitter page. So feel free to reach out if you're on Twitter. It's First Incision Podcast, and I would love to hear from you, hear what you're listening to, what you're getting out of the podcast, if there's anything else that you want to hear, um, and also just to say hi. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the colorectal module from the general surgical curriculum and the operation or topics we'll be covering today are anal cancer and extra memory Paget's disease. So let's get started with anal cancer. Anal cancer is a common topic that comes up in the fellowship exam There's a few key things about the disease that they can ask you about and also a nice management pathway. So let's get started with a little bit of background. So anal cancer is pretty rare. It's only approximately 2 to 4% of large bowel malignancies and the origin is from the squamous epithelium of the anal margin or can also come from the anal glands or ducts. There's different types of malignancies that occur in the anus. This includes squamous cell carcinoma, which is the most common subtype. About 80% of anal cancers are SCC. Adenocarcinoma occurs approximately 10% of the time. And it's thought that this is from that glandular mucosa of the upper anal canal or the anal glands and ducts. And that's treated as per other gastrointestinal adenocarcinomas. So it's sort of considered a very low cancer. You can also have anal melanomas, which thankfully are very rare because unfortunately they are a very aggressive subtype of anal cancers and of melanomas. And other rare types of anal malignancies include lymphomas, sarcomas and epidermoid tumours. The risk factors for anal cancer, and we're really going to focus mostly on squamous cell carcinoma for this next part of the talk, includes receptive anal intercourse, HIV, anal warts or HPV infection, typical strains that increase the risk of cancer are HPV strains 16 and 18, smoking, women who've had cervical, vulval or vaginal cancer, which probably has to do with them also being associated with HPV infection, and also organ transplant recipients in the same way that these patients who are immunosuppressed have higher rates of SCC elsewhere in the body as well. I'm just going to take a little segue here to talk about the etiology or pathway associated with HPV or human papillomavirus and how that's associated with squamous neoplasia, and also to talk about some of the pre-malignant lesions that can occur in the anal canal. These are Very, very rare, and this is quite subspecialized, so I'm just going to give a quick summary. In terms of the etiology of HPV-associated neoplasia, HPV infects the basal epithelial cells, and it has a predilection for the transformation zone. The high-risk subtypes, especially 16, 18, and also 31 and 33, uh, lead to cellular proliferation in this anal transformational zone mucosa and that then leads to dysplastic changes. A chronic infection leads to gene dysregulation and results in increased cell growth, progression to precancerous lesions and then on to invasive carcinoma. And this process involves shutting down P53 and the retinoblastoma genes. In terms of pre-malignant lesions, you might have heard of a term called AIN or anal intraepithelial neoplasia. This is similar to the CIN pathway in the cervix and basically is graded from one to three according to the sort of thirds of depth of the epithelium that appear dysplastic. So grade one is that the basal third is the only part that's affected by neoplasia. And this would be cells with an increased nuclear size, for example. And grade two is obviously the bottom two-thirds of the uh, epithelium is affected. And grade three is that the whole thickness of the epithelium is dysplastic. And AIN3 is also known as carcinoma in situ. After telling you all that, though, actually, the term AIN has sort of been overtaken by two other terms. So low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion and high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions. So this is LSIL or HSIL. And low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions are basically AIN1 and high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions are basically AIN2 and AIN3. It's relevant to know about AIN as this often comes up and also to know about these two new terms because really the management depends on whether they're considered a high-grade or a low-grade lesion. In terms of how these lesions may be diagnosed, they can have a specific appearance. So they may have a sort of erythematous plaque with sort of a scaly or crusted surface. They're occasionally pigmented and they're usually not infiltrating or ulcerated. If there is ulceration, then it suggests invasive disease and you can actually apply acetic acid to the epithelium in the same way they do this for cervical lesions and this will make it look sort of a white colour when you do this. So the management of this condition is a little bit controversial and subspecialized. There's not great data, but from what I've read it seems like if a patient has other risk factors for progression to invasive disease such as being immunosuppressed, HIV, having this infection with human papilloma virus and that increases their risk or likelihood of progression to invasive disease. And the rate of progression to cancer is low, so a high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion has approximately a 1.9% per year risk of progression to invasive cancer, and that correlates to approximately a 10% risk over 10 years. However, if a patient has a high-grade lesion and they also have HIV, that risk increases to about 30% over 10 years. So the management of this condition does take that into account. So in general, if you have a low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion, so an AIN1 lesion, then these patients usually will have surveillance, and that is determined by their risk. So if they're low risk and they don't have any of those risk factors, then you might be able to refer that patient to the GP, for example, for regular clinical examinations uh, of the area. If they're higher risk, so they have HIV or they're immunosuppressed, then they will need a repeat examination under anaesthetic in 12 months. When you do an examination under anaesthetic, it needs to be a really careful examination with excision of any discrete lesions if they're very small and you're not going to risk any anal stenosis, biopsying larger areas that look suspicious clinically for intraepithelial neoplasia, so you might do anal mapping with biopsies in a clock face sort of fashion with a punch biopsy in order to exclude field changes or areas of higher grade disease. They also talk about high resolution anoscopy with magnification and also using acetic acid, as I've mentioned, to try to find those um, abnormal areas which will stain white. And once you see those, you can then do a biopsy to determine if it's a diffuse or a localized issue. For high-grade disease, so that's high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions or AIN2 and 3, then really these patients need some sort of treatment. There are so many different treatment types when we're reading through the literature for these lesions. Options include ablation, which is using electrocautery to destroy the tissue, which obviously makes histological assessment impossible. Excision, if there's small areas that aren't going to cause anal stenosis, and topical agents such as 5-FU or Imiquimod creams. Imiquimod is also called Aldara cream, and it's basically an immune response modifier. It's not really clear how it works exactly. It originally was used with genital warts, but has also been used in BCCs and other types of in situ squamous cell disease. And they think that it sort of modulates the immune system to make your immune system recognize the abnormal cells and attack them. It needs to be used three times a week for 16 weeks, and it can cause quite a local inflammatory reaction, um, which can limit compliance. And topical 5-FU or 5 fluoruracyl cream is a type of anti-metabolite that interferes with DNA synthesis. And it's used daily for 16 weeks. So again, compliance can be limited uh, by those local side effects with up to 50% of patients stopping treatment because of these. The topical treatments are useful if there's sort of widespread or multifocal disease or field change, especially in highly motivated patients. A further adjunct could be something like HPV vaccination, which can reduce persistent anal infections And whenever you're using these topical treatments, you obviously need to assess the response with regular monitoring every four to six months with a good clinical exam, high resolution, anoscopy and documentation of the area with biopsy of any suspicious areas that come up. Also, patients with HIV or immunosuppression may need even closer monitoring than this, and it's important to remember that women need a pap smear as well because if they have HPV infection, they're at higher risk of cervical cancer. So getting back on track to talk a little bit more about anal SCC. Patients with anal SCC may present with a history of pain, Bleeding, itching, rectal discharge, incontinence if the sphincter is invaded, and also potentially anovaginal fistulas from local invasion. They may also tell you that they can feel a lump down there. On examination, you may be able to see a malignant ulcer with raised edges and uh, indurated edge. A PR exam is often very painful, but you should be able to feel the tumour, and the tumour can spread upwards into the distal rectum, um, or also can spread out on the skin from the anal canal. You may be able to feel perirectal lymph nodes on PR exam, and you should make sure that the examination includes an inguinal lymph node examination, which is where these can spread to, and in women, a vaginal examination and cervical pap smear. The other thing is trying to get a really clear idea about the tumour, its size, the location of the tumour in the clock face, its relationship to the dentate line, to the anal verge, uh, and whether there's any involvement of any other local structures. An anal SCC is considered within five centimetres of the anal verge, and Tumours could also be within the anal canal, so you may not be able to see the tumour completely on spreading the buttocks, or maybe just around the anal margin, which is where you can see the whole tumour on spreading the buttocks. The workup of a anal SCC should include an examination under anaesthetic, looking for those features I've just talked about on clinical exam, and usually should involve a colonoscopy to investigate the rectum and look for any other lesions. Make sure to document the size of the lesion, involvement of other structures, nodal involvement, and to take a biopsy. An MRI pelvis is part of the loco-regional staging for anal SCC. And a CT chest abdo-pelvis should be done for any metastatic disease and for systemic staging of the disease. These tumours will mostly spread to the inguinal lymph nodes. Um, However, they can also spread to the perirectal lymph nodes um, and the lateral pelvic lymph nodes. Approximately 15% of patients will have lymph node mets on presentation and especially if there's larger tumours, the likelihood of lymph node involvement is higher. Hematogenous spread occurs much later with advanced disease and typically these will spread to the liver, lungs, para-aortic nodes and also to the bones. A PET scan should be part of the workup for an anal SCC. Um, I couldn't really find a clear answer about whether it's funded in Australia, but the Cancer Council uh, wiki page says that it is part of the workup. In my institution, the couple that I've seen, we definitely staged with a PET scan, and for SCCs elsewhere, they're typically staged with a PET scan as well. This is much more sensitive than a plain CT scan for distant metastases. They used to use endoanal ultrasound for these tumours, but I think MRI has largely gotten rid of the need for endoanal ultrasound apart from special circumstances. And ultrasound and FNA of suspicious regional nodes uh, to prove that they are involved might be required, but obviously if the FDG PET shows that they have a high uptake, then that may be enough to consider that they are involved. Staging of anal SCC is as per the TNM classification. This staging system, in terms of the T classification, mostly looks at the size of the tumour. So a T1 tumour is less than 2 centimetres. T2 is 2 to 5 centimetres. T3 is more than 5 centimetres. And T4 is tumours of any size invading into adjacent organs, such as the vagina, urethra, or bladder. The nodal status has to do with whether there's nodal involvement, obviously. Uh, N1 is metastases in the inguinal, mesorectal, internal or external iliac nodes. And M1 is any distant metastases, including nodes not including those nodal stations. In terms of the biopsy to confirm the diagnosis, there's three different histological subtypes of SCC of the anal canal. The most common is just a plain SCC, but you can also get a basaloid, also known as a cloacogenic, or a mucoepidermoid subtype. A couple of special tests or immunohistochemical stains can be used. So, a P63 stain is highly sensitive for an invasive squamous cell carcinoma. And nowadays, most of these tumours will be stained for P16, P16 with immunohistochemistry, which is a biomarker for HPV infection, and that has implications for prognosis. So getting into treatment for anal SCC. The treatment for anal SCC is actually relatively interesting because it's not actually surgery that's frontline treatment for this disease. The treatment is called the Modified Nigro Protocol, which is a protocol of chemo radiotherapy treatment. And this involves 50.4 gray of radiotherapy given in 28 daily fractions with mitomycin C and 5-fluorosyl chemotherapy used as a radiosensitizer. It includes a prophylactic low-dose radiotherapy to the inguinal nodes, especially for T2 to T4 tumors, even if there's no nodes involved due to the high risk of recurrence. And this protocol achieves equivalent survival to an abdominoperineal resection, but obviously avoids the morbidity of a major operation and a lifelong stoma. Patients should have regular reassessment. So approximately every three months, they need an examination under anesthetic to examine the tumor and make sure that there's a response. And patients may have a response for up to six months. So even if there is some tumor left at the end of treatment, you want to reassess that patient every six weeks to make sure that it's improving and that if it is improving giving it that time to respond but obviously if it isn't then you may need to offer an APR and approximately 30% of patients may end up with a local failure. Complications of these treatments include diarrhea, mucositis, myelosuppression, skin erythema and late complications can include anal stenosis or fistula formation. When talking about surgery for anal SCC, there's two main options. The first is a local excision, which really should only be considered in very selected cases. From what I've read, this is also slightly controversial, so I don't really think I would bring this up in my exam, but I'll just briefly mention it here. It might be considered in a patient with a very small, less than two centimetre, so T1 tumour, that are in the anal margin, so not involving the anal canal or sphincters, that could be excised with clear margins of at least five to millimetres to one centimetre. And even in these situations, the local regional recurrence rates are really high, so somewhere around 50 plus percent. So like I said, I probably wouldn't talk about this as first line for anal cancer in the exam. The other surgical option is an abdominal perineal resection. And like I said, this is also not first line anymore because of the modified Nigro protocol. And usually an APR for an anal cancer would involve a myocutaneous flap due to wound healing issues as this is usually done post-radiotherapy treatment when there's a local failure. And like I said, approximately 30% of patients will require an APR as a salvage procedure. Indications for APR include upfront contraindications to primary chemo radiotherapy or the patient declining that. A salvage post chemo radiotherapy if there's residual or recurrent tumour. And a biopsy needs to confirm that there's tumour and that it's not just an inflammatory tissue. And as I mentioned, regression can take quite a long time. So if the patient's tumour doesn't appear to have completely reg- regressed at six to eight weeks post treatment, you can continue to monitor the area for up to six months before progressing to surgery. Other indications for an APR include complications of chemoradiotherapy treatment, such as radionecrosis, fistulas, or incontinence. And incontinence and fistulas can happen even after tumour has completely resolved. The other surgical option to mention for anal cancer includes a defunctioning stoma, which may be required for patients in order to get them through their chemoradiotherapy. Indications include patients who are incontinent with their tumour, patients with an obstructing tumour, Patients with perianal sepsis or fistulas associated with the cancer, patients with lots of tenesmus or pain that prevents them from having the treatment or leads to recurrent breaks in their treatment, and sometimes women, especially with anterior tumors who are at very high risk of an anovaginal fistula, may need a defunctioning stoma to get through treatment. And if patients do need this treatment, only 50% of them will ever be reversed. And if they do, they can have very poor functional outcomes. In patients who've had an anal C- SCC and have had chemo radiotherapy, the follow-up or surveillance plan usually involves a clinical exam with a digital rectal examination, anoscopy and palpation of the inguinal nodes every three to six months for the first couple of years, and then six to 12 monthly until five years, and then annually. A quick chat about anal melanomas. These are an extremely rare presentation of anal cancer, with approximately 1% of anal cancers being a malignant melanoma tumor. These can be slightly difficult because they are obviously dark-colored, and they can mimic a thrombosed external hemorrhoid, Um, but they can also be amelanotic in colour. Their prognosis is pretty terrible, with a median survival of only 18 months post-diagnosis, and liver and lung metastases are common. Treatment involves surgical excision, which is the primary treatment of an anal melanoma, and options include local excision or abdominoperineal resection, with the choice between the two being quite controversial essentially what they do agree on is that an r0 resection is key to achieving the optimal survival and there's approximately a 19% five-year survival for an r0 resection and only 6% if there's involved margins although there's lots of other treatments for melanoma um, such as sort of novel therapies um, which we'll go into a lot more when we do skin These melanomas unfortunately respond much less to these targeted treatments and immunotherapies than normal sort of cutaneous melanomas do. So these really should be managed at a specialized center with experience dealing with these tumors. To round off this episode, I wanted to talk about another very rare presentation of anal malignancy, which is extramammary Paget's disease. This is a super rare condition and is basically an adenocarcinoma in situ, thought to arise from the epidermal apocrine glands of the perineum. And in the same way, a breast Paget's disease can be associated with an underlying malignancy or in situ pathology, extramammary or anal Paget's disease can be associated with an underlying colorectal cancer in about 50% of cases. It's most common in females and Caucasians and typically between 50 and 80 years old. The presentation is typically an erythematous or eczematous skin lesion, which is usually long-standing and refractory to local treatment. The histopathological findings are of atypical large vacuolated cells called paget cells, which are found within the epidermis. And these are thought to either be primary, so arising in that cutaneous lesion, or can be secondary, related to an underlying malignancy with intra epidermal invasion of those malignant cells. The workup of this condition should include a biopsy, typically a punch biopsy, to confirm the diagnosis. Patients should have a gastroscopy and colonoscopy and also a urinary cystoscopy as there's a strong association with other cancers and it can be sort of a paraneoplastic presentation of these malignancies. Treatment is very controversial. Options include medical treatments and surgical excision. Medical treatments are things like topical retinoids or retinoic acid with the surgical options basically being excision. Talking about surgical excision, though, sounds very straightforward, but it seems like with extra Paget's disease, there's no real evidence about how wide the margin should be. Guidelines range from one to even five centimetres. This has high rates of local recurrence, and there's also not any studies into adjuvant chemo or radiotherapy. One tutor I went to recently, the surgeon described it as kind of ring-barking the anus, said it should be really extensive and often requires split-thickness skin grafts and obviously even diverting the patient in order to enable those to heal. Patients will often get anal stenosis and the disease is quite infiltrative. So even with all of this extensive surgery, you may still get local recurrence. But from what I've read, this is really rare and so there sort of isn't enough data or patients to study to determine what the best treatment modalities should be. And that's it from me for today for our episode on anal cancers and extramammary Paget's disease. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode and that you've learned something. Please remember to rate, review, or subscribe to the podcast so that other people are able to find it. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!